Welcome to Give Methods a Chance, a podcast where we look at social science methods and practice. Today we are joined by Helen B. Morrow. Helen is an assistant professor of sociology at Tufts University with affiliations in American Studies, Latino Studies, Latin American Studies, and the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. She's the author of New Destination Dreaming, Immigration, Race, and Legal Status in the Rural American South. Helen joins us to discuss her tripartite methodological design for studying immigrant-native relations, as well as her experience conducting collaborative, interdisciplinary research. Hi, Helen. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. So I'd like to use your recent research on immigrant-native relations as a way to understand the multi-methods approach, which includes large-scale survey and in-depth semi-structured interviews. And I'm also hoping that we could discuss your experience working as part of a team on a research project. So to start, do you mind introducing the project and telling us what your central research questions were? Sure. Well, we first came together as a group of social scientists from different disciplines. So two of us from sociology, my colleague Dina Okamoto and I, one of us from social psychology, uh, Linda Tropp, and one of us from political science, Michael Jones-Correa. And we shared fundamental interests in at least, I would say, two things. So first, intergroup contact, and second, the intersection of immigration and race relations. And we were actually brought together as part of a larger working group of scholars in these three disciplines that was convened by the Russell Sage Foundation back in 2010, uh, basically to see what would come out of putting heads together. And so when we came together, I suppose um, we started with the recognition that there had been a notable increase in immigration in the U.S. over the past half century, coupled with a recent geographic dispersion of immigrants into new communities nationwide. Uh, and that this in turn had fueled contact across a wider set of individuals and groups than ever before. But we also felt that the consequences of contact within this contemporary context of ethnic diversity, particularly for key social outcomes like trust and civic engagement, are still far from clear. So I'll give you an example. Some scholars have been quite pessimistic, uh, suggesting that rising ethnic diversity, largely driven by new immigration, leads all groups, including natives, to withdraw from community life and civic engagement. But other scholars have argued for the importance of ethnic diversity and the reinvigoration of American civic life by facing challenges of a plural society. So when we came together, we thought that these debates about the impact of ethnic diversity on civic life in 21st century America tap into some of the very central concerns about tensions between difference and commonality in in democratic societies. But we also thought that at least as of yet, that these debates offer little insight regarding how immigration contributes to this diversity, how immigration shapes social relations, and how immigration affects trust and civic engagement. So when we first put our heads together, we also agreed that these current debates regarding the effects of ethnic diversity, we agreed that they're heavily informed by research on intergroup contact, but that, you know, by and large, work on intergroup contact is still relatively limited in accounting for immigrant-native relations in diverse contexts. For instance, work on intergroup contact much of it for good reason, still rests largely on a black-white paradigm in the American context. And we agreed that it still needs to be broadened even further to consider multi-group contexts. Say even ones, right, that might be marked by differences not just in race or socioeconomic status, but also things like national origin, language, accent, religion, skin color, citizenship status, so forth, all in one. And we also shared an interest in the, in the different sort of institutional dimensions of intergroup contact. So, um, for example, we noticed that prior work has typically looked at how groups relate to each other within a particular context of interaction, but we don't know a lot yet about how these contact experiences vary and relate to each other across different social and institutional spaces um, and what kind of impacts that may have on enhancing or inhibiting group trust and civic engagement. Um, so these issues are especially important for uh, the ways that immigrants and natives relate to each other because different immigrant groups often inhabit different social and institutional institutional spaces to begin with. And these can have important implications for who you're coming into contact with uh, and what the consequences of that contact are. So I think I've answered most of what you've said, but I guess guess overall I'd say we, you know, when we came together, what was the topic? It was really an intersection of intergroup relations and immigration. And I would say we sought to integrate these discussions 
by investigating where and how contact occurs between immigrant and native groups, how that contact in turn predicts civic engagement. What methodological design did you come up with to try to get at those questions? So we actually have what I would even call perhaps a tripartite design for studying this research topic uh, in that we have um, survey data, we have follow-up interview data, and we have a little bit of brief observational data, which I can talk about a little bit too. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. Sure. So the main data, uh, we actually did a pilot survey before we did the full survey, and I'll just mention it briefly, but the pilot uh, was uh, a representative survey of four groups, um, white natives, black natives, Mexican immigrants, and South Asian Indian immigrants in a five-county area of Philadelphia, metropolitan Philadelphia, in the summer of 2012. And we surveyed uh, 421 people. Um, and we even went to the, to the, to the area for an initial site visit to meet with people and to look at places in the city where these groups actually did have um, more overlap. And then we expanded that survey into a full survey that was conducted in the summer of 2013 with um, a broader number of people. So 2,000 people, 250 of each of those four groups I just mentioned. And this time in the five county area of both Philadelphia and metropolitan Atlanta. Uh, in the summer of 2014, we went into the second part of our methodological design by doing interview, follow-up semi-structured interviews with some selected survey respondents who had answered the survey uh, the summer before. And I think we ended up interviewing about, I think about 30 members of each target group in each metro area. Uh, for a total of about 240 follow-up interviews. And we also had our um, graduate research assistants who were doing these interviews do what we call brief observations. Um, so this is not, uh, we talked a lot about this too, this is not full-scale ethnography, but it is some brief time-delimited observations, particularly of specific places and institutions that these respondents that they were interviewing mentioned, either uh, mentioned because they were important to intergroup contact or lack thereof, or because they were uh, places and institutions that these respondents frequented um, in their everyday life. Um, and I suppose that, you know, I, I can talk about that more in detail if you want, but the idea behind it was um, that, you know, we wanted some firsthand observational data on how our groups were interacting or not interacting, um, not only in workplaces, but neighborhoods, and particularly in public spaces, which have been studied less well in the literature. Um, and we wanted to look at these in ways that we could both observe firsthand, but also in a way that was connected to what our respondents were telling us. Um, and we realized uh, a bit earlier on that what we weren't doing was a full-scale ethnography. We weren't uh, uh, spending a really long period of time truly immersed in a particular space or institution to do an ethnography on that space. What we were doing was uh, privilege the, privileging the survey and the interview data and trying to tie some of these observations, uh, particularly in public sp spaces, uh, back to that data. Um, and we also have some, some interviews that the co-PIs did with about 90 what I would call key political and community leaders um, that are relevant to um, all four of our target groups or just general discussions of immigration and race relations in both cities. So we have a, a pretty massive amount of data. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's really impressive. <laughs> so did you have a topic that drew you together and then you came up with the methods to try to answer uh, all the questions or did you have particular methods that some of the researchers were excited about and then you tried to make the topic fit those methods? That one's easy. So I, we started with a topic for sure. Um, th this is a, these are huge topics. So I've mentioned intergroup contact and, and I'll center for there for now, but you know, mixed with immigration and race relations. And there's so many ways that you could ask questions about this topic as well as research this topic. Um, and we wanted to make sure we were asking questions that we were, we were focusing on a topic and asking questions about that topic that we were excited about first and only then developing out the research methods and a project design that would help us answer our questions. Um, and I guess in general, 
general, this is how I feel about all research methods. I, you know, even when I teach research methods course, I don't think that there's a right one or, or a wrong one or a stronger one or a weaker one. Um, I, for example, have the strongest specialty in qualitative interviewing, but ultimately I think that your method should be suited to your question and your topic, uh, not, not necessarily vice versa. Um, that said, after we decided on the topic, we did actually have to make some choices about which methods to pursue, how, and in what order. Um, and we talked a lot about this. Ultimately, we chose to proceed with a survey as our primary tool in the first stage of the process. And I would say that's for a number of reasons. Um, we felt that a randomized survey would end up giving us most leverage to test several of the key aspects of the theoretical model and the hypotheses about relationships between immigrant native contact, threat, trust, civic engagement, and so forth. And these were all theories and hypotheses we'd heretofore gotten largely from the existing literature um, in all three of our disciplines. Um, and in particular, we were actually thinking um, of building on efforts of a prior survey. It's the multi-city study of urban inequality, um, which had utilized a survey methodology in multiple contexts, and it had focused on racial attitudes, residential segregation, and labor market inequality a couple of decades ago. Um, but we knew that even though McSuey had included respondents of Hispanic origin, it was still, you know, primarily intended as a study of black-white relations. So it had, you know, had fallen into that that large domain of intergroup um, intergroup contact literature, largely focused on the black-white paradigm. So our study wanted to kind of follow in their example, start with the benefits of that survey and the leverage, the theoretical leverage in that survey, um, but also put a much stronger focus this time on contact and threat across multiple native-born uh, and immigrant groups, and even go into the arena of public spaces. Is there anything else you wanted to share in regards to collecting or accessing your data uh, or your sampling strategy? In particular, I'm curious with the interview part of the project, how you decided who you should talk to. Sure. I, I guess we've had multiple stages of this, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess actually, you know, it, it goes, I, I'll talk about that in a minute. It goes back even further. Um, we had to spend a lot of time thinking about who our target groups would be and where we would do this research in the first place. Um, so I mentioned that we've focused on native whites, native blacks, Mexican immigrants, and South Asian Indian immigrants. And we spent a lot of time choosing those groups for particular reasons. And we carefully selected them. You know, one of them obviously represents the, 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 the typical native majority dominant racial group, that's native whites. Another represents a native minority and subordinate racial group that's typically been studied in the literature, native blacks. Um, one, if you look at it in broad picture, represents today's quintessential low status immigrant laborer group, the Mexican immigrants. And the other, at least if you look at today, um, in broad view, represents the quintessential highly skilled immigrant professional group, Indian immigrants. Um, but the literature and the data suggest, right, that there's internal variation now within all of those groups. And moreover, that there are varied status markers um, that fall across them in, in really interesting ways, um, whether it be race or class or language or nativity or citizenship and so on, religion, so on and so forth. So they were chosen for very specific reasons in terms of how we could kind of get leverage on how people come into contact and interpret the contact with each other across these groups. Um, we even wanted to choose an African group, but we didn't have funding. That was, you know, pulled out for funding reasons. We just didn't have enough. But, I mean, there could be so many others that you could choose. Um, we also had to narrow down to Metro Philadelphia and Metro Atlanta, um, and that took a long time. Um, we actually started with wanting... We, we did. We chose them for both theoretical and demographic reasons. Um, we wanted a place. Um, we wanted two places where um, black-white relations um, have a significant presence in history, because we're building on and working within um, the U.S.'s history of black relations and racial inequality, and we're specifically talking to that um, paradigm in the contact literature. Um, but we also wanted, we also needed places where there was a sizable enough contemporary immigrant stream um, from both of the national origin groups that we'd pulled from. And so we ran a lot of American community survey data. We picked out places that had over 50,000 of each group in them. We narrowed down to, let's say, about 12 different metro areas. And then we had to um, compare and contrast different 
economic, different political, different demographic um, uh, characteristics of all of the, the metro areas we're looking at in order that we could get places that both had fun similarities we could, we could look at, but also that were different, um, that, where we can leverage differences in their economic, political, and demographic context um, for our study as well. You know, so that's about choosing the target groups and choosing the sites. Then you have sort of what were your survey sampling strategies and what were your interview sampling strategies. And this, the survey sampling strategy is quite detailed. I'll just give you an overview here. It was a 40-minute survey given to these four target groups um, in the summer of 2013. And I say that it's representative. It is. Respondents were contacted by phone through a multi-tiered sampling strategy. Um, Native whites and Native blacks were contacted via random digit dialing, both of landlines and of cell phones. Uh, but in addition to that, the three minority target groups, the, the Native blacks, the Mexican immigrants, and the South Asian Indian immigrants, were oversampled from high-density census tracts where they live, and the Mexican and the Indian immigrant respondents were also uh, randomly sampled using surname dictionaries. And there's various kinds of things that, that, that our survey firm um, had access to in, in, in pulling these, um, these sample from, but we were actually able to do a representative sample uh, that included both landlines and cell phones, but that also drew on surname and geographic uh, density. And we even put in some age and gender quotas to make sure that we would be picking up a good enough diversity of people because we do know the age and gender is related to things like trust and civic engagement. Um, in terms of the interviews, we, you know, we embedded them. We wanted the interviews to be follow-up. We wanted them to be people who had already taken the survey and who had answered yes to a recontact question at the end of that survey a year prior. Um, so those people who had said, yes, I'm willing to be recontacted, either gave us their direct phone number or the phone number was already in our data from the survey firm that had initially contacted them. And um, what we did was also create what we call a general matrix um, that just used a couple of variables. The key ones we're interested in were gender and again age, but also their composite trust score. So on the survey, sort of who was high, uh, strongly trusting of other groups, who was sort of medium trusting and who was least trusting, right? And we decided, we instructed our graduate field interviews interviewers to go out and try to get to the best of their ability um, a, a variation in uh, by gender, by age group, and by um, members who had agreed to be recontacted for an interview in terms of how trusting they might be. Did you face any barriers when you were collecting the data or did, did anything go wrong or end up uh, working in a way that was unexpected in the planning? Oh my gosh, what, what doesn't come out unexpected, right? Um, I would say this is an enormous project and I wouldn't say things have necessarily gone wrong in it, but you know, I will say that there have been a host of things, right, that just make it complex, complicated, interesting, you know, they're just, they're, they're never ending, right? Um, let me try to think of a couple for you here. Um, first, I would say just the nature of the project, right? So the main challenge for me has been not only that it's been my first project of this size and scope that I've conducted not only with three other equal co-principal investigators who all work at different institutions, some in different disciplines than me, but, you know, we're working with at least, you know, 20, 25 and, and growing parties doing a lot of the work underneath us. Um, so the benefits of having a large team and working together and working across institutions and also across disciplines are certainly enormous. And I think they outweigh the drawbacks, but this kind of collaboration and the size of the project often means that things move slowly or that no one person has complete control of a process at any time or of the timing of a work schedule. Um, and so sometimes things don't always happen as fast as they might need to, or sometimes they might happen in the wrong order and need to go back and kind of get fixed or replaced. Um, sometimes issues simply arise during course of work that you realize after the fact, right, maybe you should have known or anticipated and prepared for ahead of time, but just didn't for whatever reason. Um, so it's been a really different process and experience for me. Some of those things happen in sole authored projects of a smaller scale, um, but some of the things, they, they just grow and there are more of them. Um, I've been primarily versed in doing my own sole conducted and sole authored projects before this one. And in those projects, I've just had a lot more power and control over them, even if that's meant that I've ended up doing every part of it. So 
I guess I would say that, you know, we do get more perspective and data through a collaborative and large process like this, but it's also a lot larger and it's a lot more wieldy, maybe even less standardized and controlled along the way, no matter, you know, what kind of um, insights you're bringing into it. Um, and so I think related to that, right, we've faced a range of probably very normal logistical barriers and issues in every stage of this project, um, as well as with each of the types of groups of employees we've even been working with on the project. So, you know, just one example, we've had to go back and apply for a lot of additional funding to cover things related to the project that we never originally anticipated. We've had to apply for money to pay institutional partners um, in our field research sites for physical office space and printing privileges while our graduate uh, researcher interviewers were in the field. We've realized we have to pay for the out-of-town interviewers' needs for rental cars, particularly in Atlanta, right, where everybody drives. Unexpectedly, we've had to provide some of the, the interviewers with local phone numbers to try to reach respondents who don't answer non-local cell phone numbers. Or we've just tried to cobble together more money for having vastly underestimated things like the time it would take to do qualitative coding. Um, you know, speaking of doing interview, not just survey, but really interview work, right, and ethno ethnographic work, it's also, we've, we've had a lot of logistical, I wouldn't say they're barriers that keep us from doing it, but they're things to keep in mind, right? None of us are based in Philadelphia or Atlanta all the time. We're all in different places around the country. And so there's there's certain things we've done to try to overcome this, like we've built in advisory board members to the project who either live in the areas or know the two areas through their research very well. We've done a lot of initial and follow-up site visits to each of the metro areas ourselves. We schedule analysis meetings in them. Um, we've even been really careful to make sure that all of us as co-PIs have spent some time in both places, you know, not just one or the other during the fieldwork process. But it's just, you know, it's really not the same. It's not the same as living and breathing uh, in a place that you're studying, um, where you'd obviously have a lot more sustained, constant interactions. Speaking of sampling, I'm coming back to your earlier question on yeah. sampling. No, it's good. There's, <laughs> you know, you read a lot of articles here and there. This is how we sampled. This is how we did things, the methodology. And what you don't read um, in them, right, are all the things that kind of went wrong or that were worked around. And I'm, I'm learning on this because I'm a qualitative interviewer and I'm learning this in survey research now. Uh, but there's lots of things that go wrong. It, it, you know, they don't make your project weaker, but you've got to figure out how to deal with them. And a couple of the things we had a couple of things like this happen both in our survey data collection phase and also our interview collection phase. Um, and for example, in the survey collection phase, it got really hard after a while, particularly to make contact with and successfully complete certain quota categories, age and gender, right? Uh, particularly of the Mexican immigrant sample and the Asian Indian immigrant sample. You know, part of this demographic, they're just smaller populations to begin with, but part of that has to do with their, they're harder to reach, right? Um, and so eventually we actually exhausted all of the samples that the survey firm had available to use. Um, and even they didn't think it would take as long or, or be as hard as it was. And they ended up even having to go into the field at the end and do a couple of face-to-face -face interviews to fill out, you know, what we call a telephone survey. Um, you know, it might have been easier for them to do this all by telephone if we had relaxed some of the quotas, let them get more, let's say, older women over 65 who are retired and answer a phone at home, right? Uh, but we didn't want to do that. And so we went out and did some face-to-face -face interviews for the telephone survey part. Uh, when it came to doing follow-up interviews, there were a couple of barriers that presented themselves very immediately um, to both contacting people and successfully arranging follow-up interviews. A little bit of this was our fault. We had actually intended to um, have an intermediate stage where we recontacted people who'd taken the survey and told them, you know, hey, we're coming back for an interview just to remind you next summer, you know, be on the lookout for us. Um, and we just, time got away from us with so many other things going on in the project and we never did. So our, um, our graduate student interviewers essentially were cold calling people a full year later after the survey, which meant that a lot of people didn't remember uh, the survey. Uh, they didn't know how to distinguish the survey from some other survey they'd gotten over the phone, or they just didn't know who we were, right? Or, or the person interviewing them was, wasn't connected to that survey. So we had to do a little work to jump over um, those things. But it was also, right, um, things like, uh, 
you know, we didn't have fully geocoded information for all the people. We didn't have full addresses or phone numbers for all the people, depending on whatever um, sampling method and set of information the survey firm had originally used. And, you know, a year down the road, we didn't have a way to contact them back and get that kind of information, even if it's protected um, and available just to us. Uh, some of our graduate student interviewers had uh, phone numbers that were from out of state or from out of the local areas and just wouldn't be picked up, uh, that kind of thing. Um, so it was actually really hard and a lot harder than any of us expected to get the follow-up interviews. And our interviewers, I mean, they just, did, they, they slugged through like Olympic champions. I mean, they, they did just such an amazing work um, being persistent, being turned down all the time and ultimately completing um, their interviews for us. But uh, we've, we've built in these struggles and these barriers. We're trying to build them into a part of our analysis. And it was especially clear that it was the Mexican immigrant group, right, who was most distrustful and hard to reach, even when we were using um, Spanish language co-ethnic and co-racial interviewers. Um, so there's really something about the low levels of trust that are showing up in our survey data among the Mexicans that are affecting even the interview completion process. Um, uh, and we have to bring that in, I think, to the analysis of the Mexican immigrant experience today. Um, but we eventually even had to open up. We had to open up to all of our um, graduate student interviewers the option to do um, interviews with people who hadn't originally taken the survey. That was not something we ever thought we'd end up having to do. And we had to build in some ways to kind of get uh, some critical survey data from them as the interviews were um, being done. But, you know, it ends up not being a completely embedded project that way. Are there any other particular practical details or tricks of the trade or wisdom that you could share from having to work through these barriers and from your time working on this project? I'll give you two practical tips, two substantive tips, and maybe one cautionary tale. Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Practically speaking, if you're on a mixed methods project, and particularly one of this size, don't forget to hire project managers. Um, this was something that was an un unanticipated cost for us, and just budgeting in one to two project managers, even over budgeting, is helpful down the line when you realize just how much goes into this and you don't have enough manpower uh, to keep yourself from having to go back for more funding. Um, another practical tip, uh, figure out some kind of game plan to stay on your game on a consistent basis. It's easy to keep yourself as an individual going, but trying to kind of organize keeping everyone together and meeting together and making consistent process is, is just hard, the, the, the greater number of people you have involved. Um, and we've finally, you know, just now, several years in, figured out, you know, how to do that, how to just put meetings on the calendars, even if we don't have an agenda, to make sure we have time to, to get together and talk in our busy lives. I think substantively, um, it's useful in a project like this to really try to strike some kind of balance between what I would call a division of labor and sharing of the work. And I think this is important methodologically, right? Um, all of us bring different methodological strengths and expertise to the projects that we do. And sometimes it makes perfect sense to have one person, let's say, with the most background in conduct conducting surveys, taking the lead on that or interacting with the survey firm, doing certain things during the survey analysis, right? While, let's say, the person with the most interviewing or ethnographic experience takes the lead on something related to that. Um, and, you know, doing it the other way around might create serious problems or just be not the right thing to do. Um, but at the same time, I think it's also really helpful to share the workload so that you're learning from each other's methodological expertise and even doing things that are um, a bit outside of your former expertise. And so you're learning new things along the way. Um, and this is a lesson. So I'm the most junior person on this project. And it's a lesson I think I've been really fortunate to learn from such great senior colleagues. Um, you know, it's at some point, right, we had one person who was taking the lead on interacting with the survey firm, but at some points, I just had to do it because no one else was there or someone was on vacation or someone else had to do it, right? Uh, and we all had to learn, and, and we did learn because we were put in that position of, of having to understand it better. You know, vice versa, um, uh, all of us as co-PIs are really helping at this point to developing to, to developing the qualitative coding guide, even, for example, the social psychologist who doesn't normally work with interviews. And I think that's really 
you know, that's something that's really useful methodologically to have everyone be part of the project and have everyone sort of split the work in some ways that make division of labor useful um, and, 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 and make sense, but that keep everyone invested in all parts of the project. Um, substantively speaking, I also think, um, um, I've come to realize through projects like this, right, that it's important to find colleagues you like, not just as scholars, but also as people. You know, this sounds funny to say, but I really love hanging out with all three of the my co-PIs on this project. And they're funny, and they're nice, and I just enjoy, enjoy being with them, not only because of their scholarly intelligence and, and expertise, right, because they're fun people, and, and they're great people. And it just makes the work so much more enjoyable the end. And, you know, I think coming to something like this, I, I think this is why you see a lot of people who are friends in graduate school working together down the line, right? It's not, you know, everyone's smart, but it's because you, you're looking for someone with, um, who you have a really good working relationship, a trusting working relationship, and that's really important to making a project do well. Um, I think finally, one kind of cautionary tip, um, going into such a large and collaborative mixed methods interdisciplinary project is a bit riskier as a junior professor who doesn't have tenure. And this is something I've had to give a lot of thought to. Again, I am the most junior person. I'm going up for tenure soon. And it's not like I would turn down the opportunity again if it came around. I really enjoyed it, and I think I would take it. And, and there's just so much that I love about it. It's so exciting, and I'm learning so much. But I think practically speaking, there is there there's some things you really have to think about before tenure. There's a lot of pressure out there to work alone and to work silently as a junior person. And so many other people in the system somewhere, right, in your own university or somewhere else, often see collaborative research and assume that means you're not doing enough work on a project or that someone more senior to you is running the show, you're not intellectually strong enough, etc. Um, they assume the same things about interdisciplinary research, right, um, that are all usually nonetheless unflattering. Um, so it's just something I think junior people should keep in mind. It's not something I thought about when I got into this, and um, it's things I'm having to think about now and, and, and are really, I think, strengthening my rationale for being in the project, but they're, they're things I wouldn't hesitate to caution other junior people to think through. During the course of this, it seems like you've gathered a tremendous amount of data. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious, what have, you, what have you done with that? I know you're in, you haven't completed the yeah. analysis now, you're in those stages, but how did you go about managing that much data and what techniques did you employ? I'll, I'll be fairly quick on this. You know, we're just starting right now. We're still in preliminary stage. We're still preparing some of the qualitative data for interviewing. Um, but we have a range of, of methods we can use to analyze the survey data. And they actually come from all three of our disciplines. Um, I'll just give you a couple examples. We are doing um, bivariate cross tabulations and comparisons of means. We're doing multivariate standard regressions, ordered logistical regressions. We have various methods to test for potential mediating effects, such as when, you know, an independent variable might work through something like trust to see if it affects a relationship with a dependent variable. So I'm, lear I'm learning things right now, such as um, Sobel-Goodman mediation tests and bootstrapped mediation tests, regression analysis, different ways you can do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning from my colleagues in different disciplines on that. Um, and we're even doing other... Um, we have other strategies, right, to specifically address causality, um, which is important because we have cross-sectional data, right? I won't talk too much about that here, but, you know, we've got to think about these relationships, and there are certain quantitative techniques in the literature that are um, complex and interesting that help um, deal with issues of causality. As far as qualitative interview data going, we're still prepping, um, but we right now are developing out a two-stage way of coding all of the data, and one is a very um, general interview uh, coding guide in which we're um, making very um, general codes that we're hoping we can achieve really high intercoder rater reliability through. And then we're having a set of detailed codes that fall within them that will probably be um, less standardly applied depending on who's doing the coding and who's interpreting the data. But these we want to leave open for more inductive uh, and interpretive coding of the data. So when students are first learning about research methods and about conducting their own studies, they hear a lot about generalizability and validity. Mm -hmm. Did these factor into your projects and did this vary by the method that you were using? Yes, they factored in and I'll, I'll think through this. I think yes, they probably varied by the method too. Um, 
you know, these concepts always shape research. I'll, I'll even expand the validity one to talk both about an internal validity and external validity. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we, I, I mentioned we started, we chose to start with a telephone survey of our four target groups specifically for the purpose, right, of um, testing existing theory and hypotheses, right? Um, also for gaining a representative, potentially even generalizable or externally valid baseline of quantitative data. Um, so when you're doing anything like that, when you're doing, you know, testing of causal patterns or testing of patterns or relationships data, right, you need large N and you need to be thinking about um, external validity. You need to be thinking about representativeness. Um, it was also important to us to be able to draw on a project that would be large enough, right? So representative of intergroup contact between certain immigrants and native groups. Um, we wanted to do the best we could to find a representative sample through multiple kinds of telephone sampling techniques um, to be able to look at those kind of broad patterns in specific sites. Um, so I think, yes, you think about generalizability, you think about external validity. Um, you know, technically speaking, I'd say that means our results aren't not necessarily representative um, outside the five counties of the two metropolitan areas we did this. They may well be, right? But we don't know for sure. But we certainly wanted to have a method that they we knew that they would be representative and externally valid within the five counties of the metropolitan county of the metropolitan areas where we were studying. Now, internal validity is a different thing, right? If you know, I teach this in qualitative methods. If your data are internally valid, it doesn't mean that they apply to everyone or a larger population or even outside of a, a place and population that you've studied. What it means is that the data you're picking up through your re research method, whether it be surveying, interviewing, whatever it is, um, the data you're picking up are true representations of what you're actually trying to capture and measure among who you're trying to capture and measure it with. Um, so here I'm not as concerned with whether our data are applicable or externally valid beyond the people we actually included in the study or the places we included in the study, right? I'm just concerned that we picked up and we measured that data correctly. That's internal validity. And I think it's really important to make sure you always have internal val validity. If you have external validity on top of it, that's great, but you have to have internal validity either way, right? Um, I think in social science, it's usually impossible to know 100%, no matter what your method is, if your data are internally valid, but there are various ways you can at least try to do that, right? You can try to triangulate around your topic and your question with different methods, which we're trying to do. You can try to explore different possibilities and the relationships among your data. You can consider negative cases, you know, so on and so forth. But I, I mean, I think fundamentally, you have to make sure you're internally valid. Another often discussed idea is the positionality of the researcher, or in your case, researchers. How did this play a part in the research process or design? Because it, it seems a bit more complicated with everyone being involved. Yes, you know, I've probably given less thought to this than I should have on this particular project. Um, but, you know, let me think about it on the fly, which is, you know, we're dealing with very sensitive and power-laden and hierarchically-laden topics such as immigration and race relations uh, in politics, right? Um, and I think it's important in any kind of project like this to know what your own identity is, what your, your own racial and ethnic identity is, what your own political, you know, leanings might be, what your training in academia might be a little differently than that. You, you have to keep all of that in mind. Um, and I guess what jumps out at me, we, we are all, all the four of us have a lot of expertise in these areas, intergroup relations intergroup contact, um, immigration and race relations. Yet at the same time, there, none of us uh, belong to the specific national origin or racial minority groups that we're studying, right? Um, none of us are South Asian, Indian, Mexican, or black. And I've kind of thought about that at various times throughout the project. And we've even tried to do certain things that help us bring in those perspectives to the actual people that are doing the research. So we've 
for example, gotten um, advisory board members who are members of those groups, as well as maybe who live in those particular um, cities and can help us work through that from other perspectives. We've also, with our graduate student interviewers, right, we did a national search for them. They were chosen on their field work and qualitative skills as well as expertise, but we were also paying attention to language ability and co-ethnic and racial match, right? So it's very important to us um, that in these interviews, if you're talking about sensitive things like race and immigration, trust and civic engagement, particularly um, with some of the low trust that was coming up among certain groups in our survey data, um, that we not necessarily send a, a white person out to do the interviews with blacks um, or a white person out to do the interviews with Mexican immigrants because they're, you know, our survey data were just suggesting that um, trust was a barrier. Um, so we have tried to bring in other people to the project that bring those identities with them. Um, you know, the four of, um, I think Linda is Jewish American, um, but she has so much expertise in studying white black relations. She does a lot of work, uh, even recently, let's say with the NAACP, right? So we have some of this that, that comes into our academic as well as, you know, you know, professional work, even if it's not our exact identities. Um, Michael Jones Correa is part Latino, even if he's not Mexican. Uh, Dina Okamoto, I believe, is part Japanese, even if not um, Indian. And, and so all of us bring together expertise working with uh, whites, blacks, Latino groups, and Asian groups. But, you know, I'd say we just have to always keep that in mind, right? We're not insiders to most of these groups that we're studying. I'm curious if you've had an intended audience in mind during the course of this project, and if that's shaped the research at all. You know, I'd have to say that our, um, our main discipline is academic. Um, it's split among three sub-disciplines, or, or, or sub-areas, you know. Sociology, social psychology, and political science. There are particular um, intersections of academics that, that overlap between those two areas, right? You know, political psychologists or um, uh, immigration researchers who look across these areas. But it, it's, it's mainly a direct audience back into our three fields. Um, I'd say we also have some interest in talking to non-academics, particularly those in our research sites or those who are working around these issues, right? Um, by that, I might refer to, let's say, a variety of actors, anywhere from elected political officials, community leaders working in nonprofit or community groups, even just interested individuals, right, who live in these places who are thinking about these kind of things and they, they might not have the academic background for them or be thinking about them academically, but we see them as people who are interested um, uh, in, in the topic. We've met a lot of those people through our research sites and through some of our interviews um, and we want to continue engaging with them, right? For even maybe we, We've even talked about maybe in a couple of years when we have some findings um, put together to go back and hold some um, symposia, right, that bring together some of the people that we were, that, that we had met and that we learned a lot from so that they can develop linkages amongst themselves um, in their areas to keep working on this issue independently of us, right. Um, we've even thought about, you know, putting out some reports for uh, places not necessarily in those two areas, but that might be useful, right? So we have some funding from Carnegie Foundation. They're very interested in doing some public reports to public audiences that are not just academic audiences. We're thinking of places like um, uh, Welcoming America. You know, there, there are lots of different avenues, but I think it, it's always a mix, right? And it's always something you have to negotiate as an academic, particularly me, right? You know, I'm, I'm not tenured yet. Um, you have to you have to do the core academic and intellectual research and engage with those audiences and make publications for those audiences. Um, but you also want to make it relevant to the public, particularly around a topic such as this, where there are public consequences and public opportunities for social change. Um, so that makes for exciting possibilities, but also, I think, a lot of complexity about what you do uh, and when. I have, I've got two questions uh, as way of concluding. The first is, are there any particular limitations that you've seen to the methodological approach? And I'm really curious about this because I usually ask this of people who are employing just one method, and it seems right. more obvious what the boundaries are. <laughs> but having having yeah. incorporate all three of these, are there ones that still pop up in your mind? Yes. You know, the the big one we've been talking about, right? There's there's so much data we have, but the the big issue we keep coming back to is that it's cross sectional, right? We don't have um, longitudinal data 
that examine, right, the, 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 the impact, right, the consequences of, you know, what leads to certain kinds of contact, but what also are the consequences of that kind of contact. You know, and, and issues of causality have long been considered in all of our literatures, right, in sociology and psychology and political science. Um, and there's a number of analytic approaches that, that people use, right, both... Um, um, you know, some people use experimental studies, or some people use non-recursive structural models. Um, some people use things, I'm learning, endogenous switching regression. The, the, there's all these kind of ways in which people have figured out to take cross-sectional data and to piece out um, issues of causality within it. So I think we, you know, we're really looking to a lot of those to apply those to our data and to be very careful about what, our, what, we, what we know ultimately our data can't do. They're not truly longitudinal or experimental, right? But also to make the best advances we can with the, with the really good cross-sectional data that we do. Um, another way we've addressed it, right, is to combine it with the in-depth interviews. Now, in-depth interviews don't prove causality um, in the same way that having longitudinal data or, you know, an experimental um, uh, design could do for you. But what they do do is really look well at things like process and meaning and mechanism, right? So um, one of my um, former colleagues and now mentors, just a, a really esteemed methodologist for me, Berkeley sociolo sociologist Irene Blumrod, she calls the benefit of qualitative work in this way um, process tracing, right? And the idea is that you can actually use a limited number of cases and look at those cases in depth through qualitative methods, right? To try to figure out not the broad picture of causality, right? But how, what is the process through or the mechanism through which a sequence of behaviors and events might lead to another or how someone feels about that in the process, right? And so I think combining um, a lot of these um, sophisticated quantitative techniques with an entirely different method, right, that looks at uh, potential mechanisms and processes in a different kind of way um, help to piece out complicated issues of causality ultimately. Um, at least that's what we're hoping. Um, one little one, I know, uh, you know, a lot of our um, a lot of our, our analysis is actually going to end up talking about trust. It's going to end up hinging on trust. And we've actually realized, um, just due to time and, and, and funding constraints, right, we were only able to put one or a couple of questions about trust in our survey. Um, and we realized um, just after the survey was conducted that we just needed a lot more. We wish we kind of thought through that and, and put more. Um, you know, part of that is because there aren't great survey questions about trust in, in the existing literature. But we tried to take an opportunity in our in-depth interviews to ask um, more varied questions about trust, more open-ended questions about trust. And so I think the kind of data that is going to emerge from our interviews will help us piece out things like, um, help us understand better, I think, what trust is doing in the quantitative data. And then and for my final question, reflecting on your project again, what would you say are the main advantages or selling points of, of taking this approach to research? And I'm, I'm really interested if you were standing in front of a group of undergraduates and you wanted to say, here's this exciting way to, to learn about the world. This is what I did. I mean, what would you really do? What would you tell them? <laughs> so I, I, you, you've realized I talk too much at this point, right? So I, I feel like I have two answers to even this. The, the first one might sound geeky, uh, but I just say, you know, it's the intellectual learning that you end up doing by approaching something in different ways, right? I feel like I've learned so much in the past four years working on this project. Um, I come in with an expertise in qualitative interviewing and somewhat in um, observing, right? Um, but I haven't looked at this topic in, with just that method. I've actually learned how to look at it more through a survey and quantitatively. I've learned how to negotiate with and field a survey. I've learned about cell phone survey sampling, targeted geographic survey sampling. I've learned about how to put a budget together. I've learned about hiring and training and establishing relationships, right, with the RAs here at Tufts um, and elsewhere, actually, really great graduate RAs elsewhere who've worked on our project. Um, I've even learned how psychology and political science think about contact is different than we do. You know, um, one of the things we learned and we've incorporated both into our survey and interview data is that a lot of the real, you know, the, the fierce debates about whether 
more contact between groups reduces prejudice and produces positive outcomes or whether it leads to greater feelings of threat and more negative outcomes, right? A lot of it has to do with the fact that the different disciplines are operationalizing and measuring contact differently. Psychologists think about contact as direct face-to-face -face contact, but often in sociology and political science, we're thinking of contact at a broader, more macro level, right? We're thinking about what is the racial composition of your neighborhood or the economic composition of your neighborhood, right? And it and it turns out if you just kind of learn from each other's disciplines and you that you realize that there, there, there are these multiple measures of multiple ways not only to conceptualize but also to measure these things that you're interested in, um, you end up with a much more sophisticated picture and you just learn a lot more. Um, you know, if, if I were standing in a methods class, my second answer is, um, is this, that you know, I always tell my methods class, right, you know, make your question and there's no right or wrong method. There's no stronger or weaker method, right? If your question um, needs to look at causal patterns, you'll choose a quantitative um, or experimental research method, right? Or if you're looking at process meaning or mechanism, you should choose a qualitative research method. If you're looking at something else, you choose content and, you, you know, you, you, you put the method to the topic and to the research question. But I think the the, the real advantage of and selling point, I would say, of combining several methods into one project is that you really do have multiple types of data in one place. And when you speak to people who privilege one type of data over the other, and that is almost always people who privilege quantitative data over qualitative data, they actually listen to you. I have spent my entire career trying to defend qualitative methods, the epistemology of it, the purpose of it, the usefulness of it, right? And it absolutely infuriates me that I keep having to do it, right? <laughs> because, you know, people out there just either don't understand what they are or they privilege something else. They privilege a different kind of knowledge. But in this project, I can not only play up the strengths of qualitative methods, right? But I even have it a multiple way of satisfying, you know, a critic. That I also did it like this. Let me show you like that too. Let me show you that I can do it like that. And let me show you how these things speak speak to each other, right? Um, so I think not only do I satisfy some of those demands and I can, I, I can um, respond to these ways of thinking all in one place, but you know, it can actually even be a way to really play up the strengths of qualitative methods. Um, for someone, let's say, who privileges quantitative measures over qualitative ones, showing them sometimes how much better an interview can answer something than a survey can answer it is pretty powerful. That's great. Thank you for joining us. That was very, very useful. Thank you. I appreciate it. This was fun. My first podcast. Congratulations. I'm glad we could invite you to do this. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance.